1: All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Neil Holkauer. We're at the Nicholson Library at Linfield College. It's November 7th, 2019. Thanks so much for joining us today, Neil. We appreciate this. Uh, let's start with the most important question, which is why wine?
0: Well, uh, my exposure to wine goes all the way back to my childhood, where uh, for religious purposes uh, we had a lot of Um, You know, for Kiddish and bar mitzvahs and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it was pretty sweet. Uh, it wasn't um, particularly palatable, but it was regular. I mean, we had it once a week. Uh, my father once or twice would bring in the dry Concord version of it, which I found to be less annoying. Uh, it wasn't until 1968 that I had my first exposure to fine wine, um, it's a long story in and of itself, but basically I was rooming for a month uh, with a fellow astronomy major at Northwestern while I was waiting for the dorms to open, and um, we were both underage. I was 19, he was 18, and uh, I go into his apartment and he has a bottle of uh, Leo Villascaz and Calon Sigur. Um, at some point that neither of us can remember precisely, one of those bottles was opened, and that changed my life. I mean, that, that, that became um, uh, something that I just simply had. I have a really good sense of smell even now, uh, you know, 50-plus years later. And I derive a lot of pleasure simply from smelling a beautifully made wine. Um, Fortunately, these days I do it daily, and uh, and so it, be, it it's become a, a backdrop um, over the years. I mean, I I we formed a little gourmet society, in, in, uh, when I was a grad student and old enough to buy my own stuff, um, and we uh, would have wine tastings. Uh, some of those tastings were documented in the form of notes that I compiled and actually published. So my first publication on wine was in Vintage Magazine in 1973-74. That magazine doesn't exist anymore, and I, I have two issues, but I know I've had uh, notes and others, and I'd like to try to find them if I can. But um, in grad school, I mean, since I was, uh, you know, a grad student, plus I had a family, plus I was teaching part time to, to support myself. Um, we didn't do wine every day, but it was it was a regular thing for me. And uh, I, I like to say that I floated to my PhD on a river of French and German wine of rather high quality, because back then it wasn't expensive. Um, you're not talking like you, you, you can now. Um, it actually became a major influence in what I ended up doing, which is very strange. When I finished grad school, I went to uh, take a tenure track position at Vanderbilt uh, in the math department and didn't make enough money to support my wine habit. So after a year and a half, um, I decided that I needed to get out of Nashville and uh, and went into industry, as it were, uh, in California, which of course put me into a whole uh, wine area, so I was at Jet Propulsion Lab, um, and in Southern California, uh, and then I had access to some pretty good hooch uh, that I, you know, that I uh, took advantage of on a regular basis. Um, at Vanderbilt, my office mate had been at Caltech, and before I took off, he took off at the same time I did. Um, he gave me a stack of. Trader Joe's flyers from from you know back in the day, and so I had to make a beeline to Trader Joe's and take advantage of of that scene. Um, so that that sort of got me more and more uh, deeply involved uh, as a consumer, not not yet in any way, shape, or form involved as either a volunteer, or a writer, or anything else, and. Um, you know, over time, I mean, I uh, you know my my wine collection built up, and uh, we we also moved around. Uh, uh, I, I went from from California to Massachusetts, back to the East Coast, and and there, of course, you get access to all the European stuff. Uh, before I left California, I'd actually been exposed to Oregon wine from a Trader Joe's. Uh, uh, bargain bin. They had, gotten, they had gotten three vintages of a winery that went under, the name of which I can't remember. I thought it had something to do with Thomas, but it's not Thomas that exists now. They were selling uh, 18, bo- $18 bottles of Oregon Pinot for $1.98. So I figured I'd pick up a couple of bottles, and if I liked them, I'd go back. So I went back, and they were gone. They were history. But I had the bug. I mean, I was a Burgundy fan from before. You know, uh, California Pinots, and you know, some were pretty good, but they weren't. They weren't Burgundies. Oregon, on the other hand, Oregon. So in Massachusetts, I could find Oregon wines. I could. I could get you know Burgundies. I could get all kinds of stuff. Um, after Massachusetts, I moved to Washington State, and uh, there I'm in a different region, uh, and of course now uh, uh, drinking Syrahs and Cabs, but I'm still close to Oregon, and I can get some Pinot Noir, it's great. Um, it was my first exposure to actually volunteering at a winery. I, uh, I helped out with a crush at Betts uh, in Woodenville when he had a little little garage in the in- industry, industrial park over there. Um, I did that a couple of times and uh, uh, I actually started working retail part-time when my gig in Washington uh, went south and before we moved to uh, Virginia, uh, which is the last place I lived. So I actually worked retail and um, you know, helped out with the tasting and did food pairings and all this kind of stuff. Um, we moved to Virginia, which is also a wine area of some note, some note, and by then my collection you know, had grown significantly, and, and uh, again, I was working, so I didn't have a bottle of wine every night like I do now, and, uh, and it was sort of a special occasion kind of thing. But it's been, wine has been a backdrop to my life, basically. you know, for as long as I can remember, and fine wine certainly since uh, graduate school, you know, about 1970 on. You joked me the other day that when we were talking that you
1: had you had you had, had your Oregon habit. You'd had to fuel your Oregon wine habit, and until you finally actually just moved to Oregon after all, so you'd had to kind of have jobs to to pay for that habit all along. Which, Quite so. Which I appreciate. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about some of the work you were doing outside of wine. You you mentioned the JPL. You mentioned yeah. uh, graduate uh, teaching at Vanderbilt. Tell me a little bit about that, your
0: other career. Sure. So actually, I've had several sub careers. My my PhD is in applied mathematics. My dissertation was on um, uh, an ancient problem called the three-body problem of celestial mechanics which uh, Newton first proposed. It was never solved. It's actually unsolvable in the traditional sense. Um, and what you do is you try to describe solutions. You can't actually write them down but you try to describe them. Um, so in order to do that uh, you you apply a lot of uh, analysis, uh, high-level mathematics. Um, What it does is it gives you credentials to teach math. It also gives you credentials to be a rocket scientist. So I went to Jet Propulsion Lab to actually work on um, missions, space missions. Uh, I specialized in asteroid missions. I worked with Eleanor Helene, who discovered more asteroids uh, up until her time than anybody else. Uh, we wrote uh, a paper or two together. She named an asteroid after me, um, and and I still, I mean, I still love it. Also combines astronomy, which is you know what I was doing as an undergrad, and then as a grad student, it was sort of mathematical astronomy. So you know the loves combined, and I was able to um, make enough money to to afford the California wines and live rather better than a a professor, assistant professor without tenure. Um, I moved on from there to TRW, which was an aerospace company. Um, It was actually considered a step down because JPL was like the pinnacle of, but they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Uh, I became a cost analyst then, which, which is not cost accounting. It's building mathematical models to estimate the cost of uh, hardware space and software based on um, technical parameters. So uh, that, it turns out, lacked people. That, that, and so I was able to leverage that career to first TRW. And then after a few years, MITRE Corporation, which is now back up to the federally funded research and development level, same as JPL. Um, and that's where I spent the longest period of my career. Um, but I get bored fairly easily. I was there 10-plus years. I was department head. I was made a department head of the Economic and Decision Analysis Center. and. Um, Uh, when I didn't get promoted to the level I thought I should uh, I was recruited away by a friend from JPL who started a software company in Redmond Washington and um, and I eventually end up being the the CEO of that Uh, and uh, um, from there uh, things changed I did the little gig in the in the wine shop um, and then I went to Massachusetts, and not to Massachusetts. I went from Massachusetts to to, uh, uh, Washington State. Um, I had, by the way, uh, in between MITRE Corporation and, and the software company I was in. I actually worked for a week in a wine shop in West Concord that was owned by one of my bosses at MITRE. His family, it was like a family business. So it was my first retail experience in like 1998. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> um, so you know now I'm in Washington State and, and taking advantage of that, uh, helping out at, at bets. Um, and then I got an offer out in Virginia, uh, where I was an executive in a professional services company trying to help the government uh, do the right thing. I was, uh, at one point, vice president of SIN, Space, Intel, Navy, Army programs. Um, that gig dried up because they were sort of uh, running low on money. They converted me to a consultant. We had bought our place here 10 years ago, and we're starting to come out. So when I didn't need to be in Virginia anymore, we became residents, full-time residents in 2011. Um, By then, I had already been starting to do a bit of the writing, and I gave you that copy of my first uh, technical article on wine that was published in the Journal of Wine Research in 2009 where I combined my love of math and, and decision analysis which I had gotten into with wine and redid the judgment of Paris tasting um, and demonstrated that if you use a mathematically more defensible method uh, the Aubryon, the 70 o'brien comes in uh, in first place and edges out the stag's leap The uh, Chateau, that the the, the, uh, California uh, Chardonnay does persist in first place, doing it with this Borda method. Um, We celebrated the publication of that paper by actually procuring a bottle of the 70 (laughs) O'Brien, which turned out to be flat out terrific even 39 plus years later. so, you know, uh, that was entertaining. I wrote my first popular article uh, f- beyond, you know, after the the ones in the 70s um, for the Oregon Wine Press, and it was kind of a golden book version of that paper. Uh, it came out in October 2011, and it's called Borda is Better. Uh, and it, it, Describes what I've done, and then since then I've I've written fairly regularly for the press. Um, I've actually had an article in the World of Fine Wines and and other publications. I do regular book reviews for the Journal of Wine Economics, Journal of Wine Research, um, and so on. So I uh, you know I I'm I'm pretty active now in that, and it's a lot of fun. What made the idea of writing
1: about wine something that appealed to you? You didn't, have a co- you didn't come from really a writing, at least a popular writing
0: background, so what made you want to write for publications like the Wine Press? So, um, actually I did do some popular writing. Uh, there's an organization, when I was at, at, at JPO, we were... JPO was a cool place, and we were encouraged to not just do our, our technical work, but also uh, you know, to reach out a bit to the public because they funded NASA; they they did everything. So I was involved in in some popular writing uh, on the asteroid missions, on asteroids. Uh, Eleanor Helene and I, Glow, is her nickname, uh, wrote a a uh, popular thing for it for an organization called uh, the World Space Foundation, which which is no more. It's, Basically, uh, started right around the same time as the Planetary Society, which still exists. I was technical editor of their uh, issue on asteroids in like 1983. I would give popular talks on asteroid missions at various scenarios, so I was a popularizer, as it was. I also like writing. Um, I, uh, you know. Uh, that my dissertation has more symbols than words in it, but it was still deemed one of the best written dissertations in, in two years at northwestern so you know uh, now that may not be saying much since mathematicians are not known for being particularly um, eloquent but but I tried I mean, I have to explain things to myself, and I take that, and i I use that uh, when I when I popularize anything. So um, it's really funny. Uh, Hilary Berg, who's the editor, was shocked when I first started submitting articles because she had never known that a mathematician could write. <laughs> it's like, Okay, uh, I've been doing it for a while. Um, and and uh, the way I go about writing up a, a piece is not that dissimilar to thinking about math because you state a you state a proposition a theorem a corollary or something like that and then you you work out the details underneath and then uh, not so much formally in math that you say okay uh, this is what i told you you just basically say qed i'm done you know but in in popular writing it's again or or in presentation it's again where you Tell them what you're going to tell them, you tell them, and tell them what you told them. In the journalism business, your first line should be the lead, right? You, and so you don't bury the lead, as they say. You put the lead uh, up there. That becomes your proposition. You make your case, backing it up, and then you wrap up so that people know what you've done. Um, I also I like words. I like puns. You know, I like alliteration, and uh, um, writing gives me the opportunity to do that. It's, it's not that it's an easy thing that you can do, but it's a hell of a lot easier to come up with a new, than, you know, than coming up with a new theorem and a 300-year-old discipline that's been picked over by some pretty smart folk. So you know it 's a way of staying um, mentally interested and active and so on, uh, but still press your brain and and get something out you know before the next ice age.
1: Um, what 's unique about wine writing as compared to the other kinds of, of writing you 've done
0: well um, in, well see, clearly the subject matter, which itself is broad beyond belief. Um, there's more uh, contacts or so some a lot of the stuff I do are profiles mm-hmm. um, I profile for example Don Haggie because he's a fellow rocket scientist that was a natural uh, so you're in there interviewing people uh, so I, I had to pay attention to interview skills um, there's if you're writing popular science stuff you're at least Expecting that your audience is going to know something. Mm-hmm. If you're writing popular wine articles, um, the experience base of your potential audience is much broader and may, in fact, uh, not necessarily be as well informed. So you have to be respectful of that and then bring them along to the point where they uh, they're interested to continue reading the article. So you know I do that. Uh, I use big words because I look for precision and, and all that kind of stuff, but I also use humor and um, uh, y- you know puns and all that kind of stuff to, to get the audience ingrained. And um, it's it's. Uh, I write different kinds of things about wine. I do the the you know the piece like is better, where I'm trying to explain a technical article. I do reportage in the form of you know uh, opening a new tasting room or somebody's celebrating anniversary. Uh, Hillary sent me off to do the first weed and wine tour after. Yeah, maybe she thought because I was around in the '60s that that was a thing that I would be interested in. But you know, I don't do weed. I had, I had, and still can have security clearances. You know, (laughs) nope. Um, But it was fun. Uh, So I do that kind of stuff. And um, the the articles, some articles write themselves. Mm Uh, that one kind of did because it was a flow. You were picked up. You went to a weed shop. You went to a winery. You left. That one's pretty easy. Um, but then some you have to kind of mold and 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 uh, create yourself. Um, I quite honestly prefer the latter uh, because it does keep the brain going. Uh, I do all because. Uh, You know, I like doing Hillary a favor when she asks me because she publishes my stuff. (laughs) Um, And I also am open to surprises. You never know. You just never know what you're going to run into. Um, I still do. I still write technical articles. Uh, I had an article come out this year called The Power of None. Uh, that that's voting theory, but it actually has application in wine tasting. It's an open source article. You can find it. Uh, it came out in Sage Open. Um, it has applications in ranking wines. Um, and I gave a talk. I'm a member of the American Association of Wine Economists, which gives me a chance to travel to different wine regions. Meetings are held all over the world. And um, and I give talks uh, at their at their annual meetings, um, and I did one called uh, "How to Decide." How to decide, which which is chiding them to some extent on using mathematically indefensible methods for aggregating preferences, and showing them how to do it right. You know, and uh, this power of none actually is is uh, references. An application of, of that, and vice versa. In the in the, in the uh, presentation, I, I cite that as it was in it was submitted; I hadn't been published yet. So I, I look for that connection. I think that that's a comparative advantage I have in writing about wine. Is I'm a mathematician. I love math. I love explaining math. I love wine. I love explaining wine. It's kind of a nice marriage there.
1: Have you, have there, have you found certain topics or certain types of stories that are, you mentioned you, you, you like the ones that are, are challenging and that don't write themselves. Yeah. Are there certain topics you, you, you look for? Are there certain articles,
0: opportunities you jump at? Um, y- yes and no. There is a, an article that I would like to do someday that I just haven't gotten around to. Uh, It'll take some effort. Uh, There was a marvelous article written by Jamie Good in the World of Fine Wines in 2012 on whole cluster fermentation in Burgundy. It's a brilliant, fabulous piece. And it focuses, as I said, uh, in France, So in in addition to what I do here, I work in tasting rooms, and uh, up until the end of last year, uh, I worked at White Rose, which specializes in whole cluster fermentation. Um, I was a dear friend of Jesus Guillen, uh, who also has a label that does whole cluster fermentation, and um, I I love it. Uh, To me, it's it's neither, uh, n- uh, to use a mathematical terminology, it's neither necessary nor sufficient to make great Pinot Noir, but it does make great Pinot Noir, and when it does, it's, it's different, you know, it's more savory, um, it's the structure is interesting and so on. So I'd really like to do, uh, almost an Oregon companion piece, mm-hmm. to Jamie Goods. Uh, but it would require me, you know, setting up appointments and going around and interviewing, and and um, um, not that that would be a bad thing, but you know, <laughs> but it's it, it's uh, you know I'd, I'd have to try to be distinctive because I mean his article is so good, uh, brings up all the arguments for and against and so on, um, so that would be a challenge to sort of say something new, say something relevant. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. As you kind of look at the things you, you've written, especially
1: re- relating to wine, do you have any favorite topics or favorite stories you wrote that you're especially proud of?
0: There's a, probably five or so that I, I cite to people. Um, the board Is Better article because it's my first one and my first attempt at cleaning things up. I have one called colloidal factic, which is a term I coined to describe a wine that changes in smell. You know, it, it's. Uh cross between kaleidoscope, you know, that word, and then olfactory, your nose. And I have a parody of a tasting note in there that I think is still pretty funny when I go back and read it. Um, I like that one a lot. There's one called a Chosen Nun. I get a lot of ideas, uh, many of which I don't follow up on, from my experience in the tasting room. And people really love to ask you, what's your favorite wine? And and this is the answer to that. At, at White Rose, I was able to pop it up on our pad and say, "Here, read." You know, um, so I like that one a whole lot. There's one. There's one really uh, interesting one called "Clash of Sensibilities," and it's it's the it's where wine and math conflict. Um, there was an article written that actually Greg Jones was, was a co-author on with uh, three fellows from Portugal, where they um, were looking at ways of maybe, uh, they were rank ordering um, vintages, Portuguese vintages, and uh, aggregating um, based on some parameters or something like that. And they use something called Condorcet. Um, and and you know, Condorcet is flawed. And so I wrote a, uh, to the Journal of, of Wine Economics, I wrote a comment on it saying, no, you shouldn't use Condorcet. Use Borda. And this is what you get when you use Borda. And they published it. And then I guess the protocol is that they get to respond. So they so they responded. And they went, no, you still use Condorcet. Well, I was done, because you can't then respond to that. So I decided that I was going to take it to the streets and write, write for the Oregon Wine Press. So that's what Clash of Sensibility is all about. And instead of doing it for Portuguese wines, I did it for, I used their method. I, I used their idea with the board account to come up with a ranking. Of uh, Oregon vintages and, and like 2000s. What they did is they, they got the rankings from, that's, they got rankings from, I don't know, half a dozen or so different wine critics. Mm-hmm. And then they aggregated them using Condorcet. I aggregated them using Borda and I got a ranking. And I looked at the results and I go, no, they're stupid. And so the math was done right, the results were ridiculous. So I had fun with that. And and if you wanted to see an example of where I, uh, you know, it's an article that I'm pretty much the only one who could have written because it's, it's got the the decision analysis voting theory stuff and the wine. You know, there aren't too many folks out there who care about both to the extent that I do. Um, so that's a nice one. One that, that's made. Um, pun intended. Quite a splash is one called Grape Expectorations, about spitting. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I remember reading that one. Yeah. Um, it, it's, not, it's not one of my favorites, uh, although I think it's awfully good, but uh, it, it, my colleague in the tasting room at White Rose would show it to everybody, so uh, it, it developed a bit of a fan club over there. Um, so that, you know, that's kind of a rundown of some of my my personal uh, pr- preferred ones, mm-hmm. yeah. Tell me a little bit about the, the the audience, especially as
1: you're, we'll talk about your work in the tasting room here in a second, but yeah. especially as you're out in the world of wine, you're, you're a part of the industry in, in, in a way, and and you're writing for this audience that you may run into,
0: what has the feedback been like? What is the readership I, like? I'm shocked. Um, I was once Covering the Oregon Wine Symposium, for Hillary uh, needed somebody, so I did that. And I'm, you know, you wear your name tags and stuff. And um, and I'm running up in the elevator, and a, a gentleman's in there and, and sees my name, and he's and and he's showering me in compliments, and it's like a little embarrassing, but you know, because I didn't even think I knew people read my stuff because I made them, like my family. I said. You will read this, but uh, I didn't think anybody else did and actually my re- the, the response i've been getting has been very positive. I do have a little distribution list that I send things out to um, with maybe you know a hundred hundred or so names and uh, i I um, get feedback immediate feedback from from those folks sometimes uh, I just sent out two book reviews that I did that just came out in the Journal of, of Wine Economics. Uh, one of them is on Maltman's book called uh, Vineyards, Rocks and Soils. And it's, it's a guide to geology. He's the person who kind of debunks the notion that there's minerals in wine. It's also the foundation of are there rocks in my wine that I wrote uh, you know, a couple of months ago. Um, that one's gotten some positive feedback uh, already. So that, you know, it's nice. It keeps you going. Truth be told, um, when I sit down to write, I do it for myself. Um, it's, it's nice to have an audience. Uh, I certainly don't avoid having an audience. I'm flattered and even a bit embarrassed about the, the praise I get. But I write for myself because it's fun. <laughs> And I'm at an age now where you don't remember the last thing you did. So if you go back and read a piece uh, from months or years ago, it's like fresh. And you go, hey, that's pretty good. You done good, kid. <laughs> so um, that's that's fun. You know, that's a lot of fun. But yeah, I, I I'm getting more invitations to you know to go to events, to cover things. You know, I'm I'm certainly now considered. Uh, part of the org and wine media, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is nice. It's great. <laughs> yeah.
1: In addition to that, you, you mentioned your work at White Rose and now uh, at Chehalem. Chehalem, yeah. about uh, that part of the industry and, and, and kind of dipping your toe into the, the customer service side of things.
0: So um, I had the experience in retail from, uh, you know, the two shops mm-hmm. that I work with. And when I moved here, uh, you know, we looked around to figure out where precisely in this area we'd settle. Um, I knew I needed to be close enough to wineries because I knew I wanted to work in tasting rooms, part time, part time. Um, I'm, you know, I'm an applied mathematician, which means you know you got to get your hands dirty in some real thing. I love pure math, but um, but. You know math blossoms for me when it 's applied to something, mm-hmm. similarly, if i 'm going to go and write about something, I have to get my hands dirty in some sense. Mm-hmm. So I volunteered at wineries I still do from time to time, um, and uh, i I also love to talk about wine, as you can tell in this <laughs> interview uh, and 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 so an opportunity to get out of the house. Uh, Talk about wine, uh, be part of the industry, is to work in the tasting room, and um, uh, I particularly enjoy engaging with folks. uh, And then you get uh, all kinds of folks. I mean, I, I worked at White Rose over six years, and. I'd get professors in there, and then we start talking math, which they don't expect to do with a guy on the other side of a tasting room <laughs> bar. And you know, out comes the napkins and the pen, and you're scribbling and in, in, in giving them stuff. And, and that's, that's fun. And in between, you're pouring and gabbing about the wine and talking about where it comes from and, and all that. Um, and the day, day goes by. And uh, once in a while, you pick up an idea for for a uh, an article, um, like when they keep asking me what's your favorite wine you know uh, so that's kind of nice. Um, you also when you work at a tasting room like I did with White Rose, where you're at the winery, you're in where the action is and and like I said, I was, I was dear friends with Jesus. his brother was a tasting room manager, and you know we. Yeah, I'd go down. I'd, I'd um, do barrel tastings. I, you know, get the latest. I'd walk the vineyards. I'd taste the grapes. Uh, again, all of this, I think, gives me background, which lends gravitas to my opinions in writing, uh, more so than if I just sat in in, in another city where there were no vineyards, and no wineries, and I made things up from whole cloth. You know. Um, you know, you know. When I write and say something, it's because I've seen it, tasted it, felt it, heard it, experienced it, and that's very important. That's the applied aspect, you know. And now
1: you're working with Shahalams. So tell, yeah. tell me about the differences. Now that you're not a white rose anymore, what's the?
0: How is it different? How is it the same? So um, I love them both, and and the shahalum experience is. Urban, right? I'm not at the winery, although uh, I'm one of the people trained to do tastings at the winery. Should they come about, but you know, I've done that uh, once. Um, but I've only been there less than a year now. Um, so it's urban. Uh, you don't have the ability to say, you know, to, to walk somebody outside and say, "That's where your wine came from." Instead, it's two and a half miles down the road, or you know, ten miles the other way, or whatever. Um, if you've been to the White Rose Tasting Room, it's the it's an attic, so it's dark. Uh, Shalem Tasting Room has windows and indoor plumbing, which is it's good. <laughs> it's good. They have white wines. Uh, they do more than Pinot Noir, so it gives me a broader palette to talk about. Um, there's some spectacular bottlings and some very uh, friendly price-wise and and consumption-wise, you know, things that you can drink younger. It's a different um, different clientele that's pitched to. There's some overlap. Uh, it's there, there's some luxury, you know, price, uh, single vintage, mm-hmm. reserve. Uh, type wines, but a whole lot that are more popularly priced, whereas White Rose, of course, uh, more premium, luxury uh, level stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh winemaking approach is different. They don't do whole cluster fermentation. Um, they both represent uh, vineyards in Oregon that I'm particularly fond of. White Rose, for one. And Ridgecrest for the other, um, I think those are both you know truly wonderful vineyards in, in Oregon is you know I, I never sat down and counted but there's a, a handful that stand out to me you know Montazi, uh, Temperance Hill, you know that quality. so it, if I have to work in a tasting room, it will be a tasting room where they get wines from one of those vineyards that I really like you know it makes a difference. Sure. I have to be able to honestly sell. Yeah,
1: makes sense. You mentioned uh, Jesus a couple of times. Yeah. He was kind of one of the rising stars of Oregon wine, of course, and you had an interesting relationship or a close relationship with him. Tell me a little bit about meeting him and and watching him kind of grow up in the industry and and then about losing him last
0: year. Yeah, so um, I first met Jesus in 2010. He was pouring White Rose wines at an event called Trilogy. Uh, which I think went for maybe a year or two, and then went poof. Um, And that must have been the first time I had White Rose wines, because it was either then or at Thistle when they had a 2007 or something. Um, And then when I started working at White Rose uh, with his brother and and he... um, he had, that was in 2012, so he had become the, uh, the winemaker in 2008. Um, right, after, right before I started at White Rose, the uh, Portland Monthly had ranked two White Rose 2010s, uh, number one and two Pinots that they had tasted, and he made them. Okay, and they were great. I still have one bottle of the the number one one, the Dundee Hills, which was a precursor to what they now call the neoclassical objective. Um, as so many winemakers around here uh, do, he struck me as really bright, I mean just really uh, uh, an intelligent guy I had the computer background, but just. Um, uh, warm friendly you know uh, great guy um, he was pushing his starting to push his own label Guillen family wines and um, and then you, you know we became friends i mean 'd come over for dinner uh, he liked my writing um, he was a fan and and, in fact, asked me to, to write that article last year on uh, the, the, um, what became Ivoy. It uh, had no name at that time, so I, that was my first cover story at the Oregon Wine Press. Um, and then unfortunately, or sadly, uh, you know, months later, Hillary asked me to write his obituary, which was terrible, it was just an awful thing. Um, but we'd kid each other. we you know, he liked my cooking, um, he, he respected my palate, I respected his palate. He had a remarkable palate. Uh, we had distinct tastes. Um, he, he was, uh, he's into a little bit bigger uh, pinots, but when he does them, they're great. I mean, I just had his 16. Adrian at that dinner, mm-hmm. and I, I thought that was just wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, just just a wonderful wine. Um, he's got another one that he made, an 11, where he kept it on Lee's for two years, and I have one bottle of that, uh, which I'm still, 11's I'm holding until they're 10 years old at least. Um, but he would give me taste along the way, and and he noted that when I was really liking something, I would go ooh. So that's an ooh wine. Uh, that that 2011 Adrian. Um, but you know, over the years we became closer and closer. We would go back and forth on the 14s. Uh, the little comment that I would make in my my writing, and, on, and I, I finally had to put it in print because people were stealing it. But uh, my saying was, you date the twelves, you marry the elevens, you friend the thirteens and fourteens are one-night stands, meaning I didn't expect them to last very long. So he he and I would go back on that. He would um, he, he would say, no, nah, you know, because uh, he was really proud of his fourteen white Rose and fourteen winemakers cuvee, which which he thought uh, would go for. 10 years at least. No, you know, five to seven, five to seven. Um, we started pouring the 14 white rose. And the first time I tasted it was blind in, a, in an event. And I hated it, uh, that the stems were too apparent. And I told him, I, I told him, and I told his brother, I said, it mm, needs time. He said, it's great wine, it's, you know, one of the best things I ever made. It's fabulous. I mean, it's truly fabulous. And um, this is kind of sad, but uh, when I visited him in, in the hospital, um, the only time I got to visit them, um, we were talking about it again, and they said, you know, you're right, they are going to go longer. So at least I got to tell him that. But, um, I mean, just just to be working in there, I, I found out because I showed up at work, and, and Gavin, the general manager, I'm walking in from the parking lot, tells me, and I had no idea it had gotten that bad. Uh, we knew it wasn't good, but to where it, where it happened.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, um, you know, so we're, we're open. I, mean, I asked him, are going to stay open? He said, it's up to you guys. So I, I go in there and... and um, my colleague uh, Margot was in there, and he said, "What do you want to do?" And, and as we're talking, customers come in, so you just you just hunker down and, and go. Um, there was There was so much potential, you know, um, and you know we're still in mourning. Um, it's tough to lose to lose that talent. And a friend, I mean, a really good friend so, so you wrote about
1: the formation of what you like you say what is now ivoy yes. and you got then you got to attend their first fundraiser yes. on Sunday, so tell me about the kind of what's going through your mind as you've watched it actually become something
0: that is, is, actually exists and has a name it's it's it was I was delighted um, uh, first of all uh, I, I really love the fact that. Folks don't sit around and whine with an H about the 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 problems and oh, what was me? You know, people aren't getting ahead. They hunker down and do something. Um, and and I uh, I admire you know I come from I'm second generation American on one side, third on the other. So I'm descended uh, from immigrants. I, I, you know, I'm one, the Holocausters uh, came from Eastern Europe, and and they worked their way up. And I admire that mentality. Um, you know, there was there was a lot of families working together, and I also, you know, being of the academic persuasion, I like. Teaching, I like seeing people learn and develop and figure out what they want to do. So I was thrilled when I was there on Sunday night to see that um, it's gone from a no-name organization to a name to 501c3 status to a real plan involving taking at least a dozen folks from the vineyards, putting them in the in the classroom, and letting them figure out, you know, with skills what they want to do next. I think that's just fabulous. So um, I pitched an article to Hillary uh, for February. I haven't heard back, but I'm going to write it anyways. And, and I look forward to, to chronicling their success. I mean, it's, just, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. So to back up a little bit,
1: uh, you sort of, you became interested in Oregon through its wine and you kind of circled around it for a while and you finally settled here. So tell me about your initial impressions of the Oregon wine industry, maybe before you got here and then especially once you got here, and sort of how you've seen, how your impressions have changed.
0: So um, the first time I set, I already told you about the first times I tasted Oregon Pinot. First time I set foot in Oregon was in 1990. conference, um, uh, 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 aerospace conference that I went to, uh, American American Association of whatever. (laughs) I I don't do it anymore, so I don't remember the name. I'm not in the organization. Um, But it was, you know, we decided, I'm in Oregon, and we went out for dinner one night um, to Jake's in Portland, and I had a bottle of I can remember exactly what I had. I had a bottle of Rexhill uh, Pinot Gris, and we had a bottle of Adelsheim um, Pinot Noir. And I'm going, this stuff's really good. <laughs> yeah. Want some. Um, so after the conference, I uh, went. Uh, I was with a young lady who worked in, in I was a MITRE at the time, worked in, in my uh, department. And um, you know, why don't we just sort of go into wine country, not knowing what, what the heck we were doing. <laughs> and, and so we got in the car. It's Friday afternoon. we drive, driving. Maybe we can stop at Rex Hill and pick up some of this Pinot Gris. You know? And, and we driving down. And of course, it's closed. I mean, it just I had never been to, to the Willamette Valley, Dundee, or anything else. Um, so OK, well, we got to eat. And I heard McMinnville's cool, so, so let's go to McMinnville. So we're driving through uh, Dundee, and over on the side, I see something that says, uh, Alfie's Wayside Inn. And I said, that's really weird, because Wayside Inn is in Sudbury, Massachusetts. We're in Oregon. What the heck? I we no, keep going. We get into McMinnville, and it looks like, any other suburb, and there was no obvious place to eat. I had no idea about Third Street, Nick's, Mm -hmm. or anything else. So I said, you know what, let's turn around and go back and eat at Alf's Wayside Inn, find out what that's all about. So we go in in there, and it's, it's not very crowded, and we get seated, and there's a wine list. There's a reserve wine list. And this is in 1990. There was a 1985 Cameron Reserve Chardonnay for 25 bucks. He said, "That when you get that, and it was it was wonderful. Um, The food was great too. Turns out the reason the place was called Alfie's Wayside Inn is because they had this cookbook that Vincent Price, the actor. assembled from recipes from all over the country. And one of them was Wayside Inn. And I think they took their dessert from that or something. So it's building up that Oregon is pretty damn good. Um, We, you know, so I'm back in Massachusetts and we're getting, you know, Oregon wines here and there. Um, It wasn't until I actually, after Massachusetts, came to Washington State, where we started coming down and, and drinking more. So then it was much smaller, more in, intimate. Um, the, there was no Chehalem tasting Room. There was a trailer at the winery. And and uh, you, you bought your wines out of the trailer. Uh, prices were lower. Um, and, and there were fewer places to go to. Uh, over time, I mean, certainly, even in the time between uh, we bought our place 10 years ago, and now the changes are profound. There are way more wineries. Um, you have this influx of you know, some Californians, Burg- Burgundians, and so on. The reputation has skyrocketed. Uh, Prices are both going up, and for for the value segment, uh, the number of office offerings seems to be increasing, where the the quality is is good. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to mention any names, but uh, it wasn't that long ago that I did a review of a book by uh, uh, the guy who was the uh, um, it'll come to me, uh, he, he was the only reporter at the Judgment of Paris. Uh, I, I know him. He was in The One Economist for a little bit, but he did a book on on bargain wines. Uh, his definition of bargain wines was under 15 bucks. You couldn't find anything in Oregon that was under 15 bucks, Pinot Noir-wise, that was worth drinking. And I commented on that in the, in the book review. Um, are we there yet now? Maybe in the smaller formats, maybe, but certainly um, maybe in the twenty-dollar range, you know. So over time, I think that's that's getting better, uh, and at the same time, we now have you know three-digit pinos. That's they're not uncommon, um, and they were rare back in the day. I mean, there's a whole, as I said, I'm in The Wine Economist, and I have an interest in in that sort of stuff. Um, I have concerns about pushing the prices up too high too fast if you're trying to capture a market. Um, There's an excellent little article in in Wine Business News today uh, on that very point about don't go for premiumization. Keep in mind the fact that you've got to bring in an audience. Mm. Um, I'm an okay boomer, right, and, and uh, we're kind of um, aging out. I'm actually a, an old boomer, uh, and we're the ones who buy the expensive stuff because we can. Uh, my, my kids, who are variously millennials, and then there's a couple that are the one before that, the Gen, X. Gen, X, Gen Xers. Um, they're in various phases, but they don't spend a lot on wine if they buy it at all. Um, and then, you know, the, the really younger millennials, uh, you've got those issues. So I think the, the industry is going to, um, and, and I think it is responding to the fact that if you're going to attract more people, you have to have value offerings. And then um, keep the prices sane. I understand that that years of deprivation and not making any money and all that kind of stuff, the minute you get uh, notice and so on, the temptation is there to pop up pop up the price. But you know once you put it up there, you really can't bring it down. And um, without going into specifics, I have seen firsthand the effects of, a price, uh, you know, a precipitous price rise or you know the steep price rise, affecting the bottom line. Mm-hmm. I, I've seen it. It it just happens, you know. But um, reputation is fabulous. The wines are breathtaking. Uh, you know, I, I've been to Burgundy with uh, Scott Wright, who had founded Scott Paul. Uh, he's got that Caveau thing, and he tells him only 10% of the burgundy producers are any good you know out of 3000 said so the rest are coasting a reputation i would flip that around and maybe make it 95 5 that are excellent and 5 that haven't figured it out yet um, it, it's that good you know it, it it really is it's it's a joy to be here you know <laughs>
1: What do you see as you look ahead for the industry? Obviously you talk about precipitous change even in the last
0: decade mm-hmm. What do you see a decade out for the future so um, i I hope to be chronicling it then and uh, i i I expect that um, you, there's some there's some things that are starting to happen now there's this this uh, beginnings of a split between north and south uh, that has to be that has to be resolved, or it could become it, it could become an issue. Um, and I understand both sides of the argument. Uh, I, I really do. Um, it's it's going to be hard for the for the first generation winemakers with no progeny to keep their businesses going. So there's going to be a lot more sales. Um, probably some consolidation there's going to be some shaking out Uh, you know our our economy um, our our economy is perceived to be good now but everybody keeps thinking there's going to be a recession I mean if that happens $100 $150 pinot drop to the bottom of people's priority lists and that'll happen overnight um, there's already a backlog of, of high-end stuff. You know, 14 was an abundant year, 15 was an abundant year. And those things are still available. Um, so I think 17 was supposed to be pretty good uh, in terms of quantities. So these backlogs have to have to sell out. Um, maybe production needs to, to reflect better. What what's going to be saleable, you know, in a year or two? Um, I think it, it, it's going to be a clash of we made it on the world scene, big time, undeniably, an economic reality, and how that's sorted out, uh, you know, if I could, if I could have a crystal ball, it'd be a lot richer. Um, you know, I could have figured out the recession and all this kind of stuff and made money that way but but somebody's going to have to uh and i'm I'm sure i mean the folks I meet they're they're realistic uh but they're also capitalizing on the fact that people come here they they pay the prices at least for now.
1: You mentioned that. Oregon wine kind of captured your your interest personally from the very beginning and, yeah. and especially Pinot Noir as, as a fan of Burgundy. So tell me, this many years later, is Pinot still that captivating to you? Do you
0: still find it that exciting? Okay, I can, I can tell you, last night we had a bottle of 2008 Archery Summit Red Hills uh, Vineyard that knocked my socks off. Uh, I didn't expect it. I, I love Red Hills. Um, eights to me have been Mostly really good. I'm a cool vintage guy. It was a warm vintage. This had a quality from the time I opened it. You know, through the time we finished it after dinner, that just made me happy. You know, it just—it's like I—I I, I went back to, to some of the best Pinots that I've tasted from Oregon and gone, yes, they're still, it's, and I got these in my cellar. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> I've got two more bottles. Um, so I, I don't, I, I, you know, I, I am somebody who's restless and curious and changes, I mean, I change jobs frequently uh, for getting bored and for financial opportunities so I could buy even more wine and so on. Um, but. But Oregon Pinot, Pinot in general, uh, has has just kept its hold on me. Uh, I, I I hear there was somebody who once said, "Oh, I get tired of Pinot." When you get tired of Pinot, you tire of life, <laughs> you know. Um, I I uh, I'm not tired of Pinot. I'm certainly not tired of life, you know. Uh, no, they're they're wonderful, varied. Um, some are more to my palate than others. Oh, by the way, my palate changes. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a time that I was into the big ass reds. You know, you get bitch slapped by fruit. You know, Whom? Yeah, hit me again. <laughs> um, but but I'm you know I'm into elegance and understatement, savory, uh, more savory Pinots, more um, complex. You know. Uh, colloidal factic to use my word that nobody else ever does uh, <laughs> the the uh, that really you know my sense of smell is still good uh, and and I, I like to feed that and, and there is no better wine than Pinot Noir and Oregon makes some of the best it just does
1: so you mentioned that you hope to be chronicling Oregon wine for a while going forward. Other yep. uh, future plans, anything else you're looking forward to on the horizon?
0: Um, so this year I was recruited to be a, uh, a um, field editor for Slow Wine 2020, which was... A complete joy. Uh, I got to the sign up sheet first, so we're one of the first, so I got to pick the wineries that were nominated, and there were some 65 or so. And I cherry picked those that I was interested in, some that I knew, some that I didn't know. And um, that's going to come out next year, and I hope that I get to do something like that again. I, I think um, it, there's I keep threatening to write a book. Uh, and I think I finally have to get off my butt and start doing it. So um, it, it'll be a project that I intend to keep working part time and so on. Um, and that'll the, the book will, of course, mention my two loves, the wine and the math. Not necessarily in that order, um, but maybe in that order. Um, and, and so I have to uh, you know, make time to do that with fewer distractions and other writing assignments. But Hillary's got my email and, and you know, say, hey, you, can you do this for me? And if I'm available, the answer is yes. Um, uh, we do travel a lot because uh, we've got grandkids and kids mm-hmm. in other states and so on. That takes time away. Um, Somewhere down the line, I, you know, I, I did have an article in the World of Fine Wines. I love British wine writers; um, they're, they're my they're my idols. You know, uh, when I first got into this this uh, interest, you know, most of the wine writers were British. There were some Americans, um, certainly later on. Uh, uh, Frank Pryle from the New York Times and. Uh, Asher from uh, Gourmet magazine, both marvelous writers, uh, but then you had you know the, the Brits um, and even to this day, uh, Andrew jefford is fabulous that uh, you Johnson and I enjoy um, so it was a treat for me to be published in the same magazine that they publish in uh, the World of Fine Wines. And another one that I'd really like to get an article in is Decanter. Um, but they already have an Oregon guy. And I've pitched articles to them. It's, it's, you know, it's tough getting anything sold. Um, it really is. And, and so I have to try to come up with some idea that'll set me apart that they may bite on. They also will tell you, we don't have big budgets. Um, and we spent it all for this year, so you have, have to go back again, you know. So I'd like to get you know, I'd like to reach out and get some stuff there. Uh, 75 looks like an, the 75 looks like an interesting publication. I've read some great articles in there, maybe maybe there. Um, in terms of ideas, again, I keep my ears open in the tasting room and, you know. I take a lot of showers, so I get ideas that way, you know, just where they come. Um, it's, it's, We'll see. We'll see. Ten years ago, I didn't know I was going to be doing this.
1: <laughs> so if you had uh, someone come up to you in the tasting room say, and, and say they were a young person wanting to get into the wine industry today, what would your words of wisdom to them be?
0: Um, really want it. OK, because it's, it's hard work, um, it's low pay. Uh, depending on which end of the industry you get in, it can be long hours uh, during harvest. And um, it's like any, anything else for anybody who wants to get into something, really want to do it and do it. So um, when I first started tasting wine, I had books, but i didn 't read nearly as much about stuff as I do now, so I would say, um, certainly taste a lot of wines, develop your your equipment, your palate, your nose. Uh, read some, um, but do more tasting than not. Um, do inter- internships apprentice yourself to to uh, somebody in the wine industry, whatever aspect you're interested in. I mean, the wine industry is like any other industry. It's got a business side. It's got a technical side. It's got a sales side. It's got administrative side. And then it's got the publicity, the marketing, the, the ancillary stuff. You know, um, So pick where you want to go, try them all out, uh, and then just go for it. Uh, I mean, the, the key thing to anybody who really wants to do something is to get in there and start doing it. I mean, when I was, when I was first studying astronomy, and uh, I was a kid, first of all, when I was in high school, I would hang out in the, in the planetarium in Philly. Um, I, 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 when I was an undergrad, I got, I got a job working for an astronomy professor uh, you know, under a NASA contract. And you know, it just gives you the experience. It tests your, your commitment to it. You know, do you really want to do this? Is this something you really want to do? Because then you see upfront front and, and uh, you know, very personal what it is that, that you have to do if you're going to do this business. So same thing on the wine.
1: That's all the questions that I have for you today. Uh, Is there anything we didn't cover that we should have? Anything I didn't ask? No, I I think I think you did good. Thank you. Well, coming from an interviewer and writer himself, that makes me happy. Thank you so much for joining us today for giving us your thoughts and opinions, and uh, we'll go ahead and sign you off. Great. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast, and thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success.